Well, good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, for those of you who, who may not know me yet, um, my name is John Song. I'm the somewhat new assistant pastor here at Redeemer. It's been about, what, almost five, six months now. So glad to be here and so glad that you could join us for tonight's worship. We promise to try and get you out of here before they finish counting the election ballots. Um, tonight, we will examine, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. If you've ever read through the letter of 1 Peter, you will know that Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are in spiritual exile. They have been removed from their homelands. They are moving into a different part of the world. And all these different regions are coming together. They're coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different politics, different upbringings, and different stages of life. And they are living in incredibly hostile times towards Christians. A period where Christianity is considered to be dangerous on a political, social, and economic scale. Many new Christians are finding themselves completely challenged to live in the surrounding culture, finding public discourse and the lifestyles of those around them difficult to be who they really are in Christ. To them, it almost feels like the end of the world. Does any of this start to sound or feel familiar? So here we go. We're looking in God's Word today, and, and we gather on Sundays because we're reminded that God's Word isn't just something that happened, but it's happening. And so First Peter, in its first three chapters or so, starts off reminding the people of God who they are in Jesus Christ, reminding them of their identity in a broken world. But Peter doesn't end there. Peter, like every good gospel preacher, doesn't just leave it by saying, you're a Christian, right? The full gospel isn't just simply saying Christ is yours, but it also leads people to say that I am a new creation where the gospel is a reality that is lived out in my life. This is why Jesus says the two greatest commandments, right? Which we'll get into a little bit later. So there's the teaser trailer. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, as he talks about the, the summation of all of these commandments that he's giving to his people. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. All right. This is uh, the reading of God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I could just end the sermon right there. We could just pray and get out of here, but let's, let's dive a little bit more into God's word. Could, you, could we pray together? Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, uh, where we feel like we, we don't know what to do, we don't know what to say, 
We don't know how to act because we fear that the world is changing so rapidly around us. Father, remind us of our calling as Christians. Lord, remind us, Lord, of the good news of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And may that transform us so that we can love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. God, be with the preaching of your word. May your Holy Spirit speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, how do we live when it seems as though the end of the world is at hand? I don't know about you, but uh, watching sort of the stress and uncertainty of the world this week, um, there became a growing sense within me, and perhaps with you, this question of what do I do now? What do I do? Um, you know, the things can be so big and complicated, and we almost feel helpless in the midst of it all. And so some of us, this week has, has pricked a particular fear in us of, what do I do? What do I do now? How do I live in this world which either has been broken for you this week as, as realities have started to fall? Um, either you maybe, maybe false hopes have started to really started to, to degrade your sense of trusting in what, what is the world like? Who can I trust? What do I do now? And so this is why the word of the Lord is so incredibly timeless to us. Because Christians have always actually been in this very unique place that we are right now. Right? We, we, we have a tendency in our lives to think that we are the generation that is facing something profoundly different than the Christians before us. Um, and, but, you know, what C.S. Lewis calls like chronological snobbery, right? But actually, uh, Christians of every generation has been feeling this feeling. And so Peter's letter gives us all kinds of exhortations and commandments on what, what do the next steps look like? What do we do now when all of our comforts seem to fade away? So he calls for the people of God to do very ordinary things. After reminding them of their identity in Christ in chapter 1, chapter 2, he calls them to watch their speech to mature in the faith, to submit to every authority. Chapter 3, to, to have healthy families, husbands and wives, to, to suffer well, to be zealous for good, to mimic the sufferings of Christ. And so we're getting here to chapter 4, verse 7. And we're arriving this conclusion where Peter's trying to capture all of the things that he's been saying in this letter to one thing. And he says this, Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Now, I don't know about you, right? But, but when I read that, that almost seems like an incredible letdown, doesn't it? I can imagine Christians in Peter's day and the responses they would have. Peter, don't, don't you know how much we're suffering? Right? Peter, we're living as exiles in this foreign and strange land, and, and, and we are just terrified. There's, there's turmoil on every side around us, and the best thing that you can give to us is love one another earnestly. You're, you're giving us a bumper sticker? Like, what? What's, what's behind all this? You know, it's, it's difficult because um, it, it can be hard to speak on an abstract concept such as love. 
particularly because it's a concept that our culture has defined so broadly that it doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Love, love can be the most intense thing that you hear in the world. When, when, my, when my wife said to me, I love you for the first time, and like the world just kind of faded away, but it can also mean something completely throwaway, right? Oh, I love your Instagram. Oh, your pictures are so amazing, right? I'm like, oh. Love is so confusing when we talk about this word. And it's, it's this contradictory word in our culture. I mean, think about the love songs that have been written over the last 50 years or so, all right? Partridge Family, right? 1970, I think, right? They said the words, I think I love you. But then Savage Garden in 1990 says, no, I knew I loved you before I met you. <laughs> Bad English, the rock band in the 90s, they say that love is about the nights when we fight about it, never dream of giving up. That's the price of love. And then Jennifer Lopez says, my love don't cost a thing. <laughs> Whitney Houston, the late Whitney Houston says, I will always love you. And John Legend says, no, nah, I used to love you. Guns N' Roses, I used to love you. Stevie Wonder says, I just called to say that I love you. And the rapper Drake says, you know, you used to call me on my cell phone late night when you needed my love. And perhaps the most contradictory statement is that musical prophet of prophets, Meatloaf, where he says, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> Whatever that is, right? Our culture has got it completely messed up and wrong. So before we begin, we got to talk about what are we talking about when we talk about love? Or what are we talking about when Peter talks about love? What is the Word of God saying here? How does this actually help us to make sense of the world and the gospel within us? Because within the Christian community, there seems to be a confusion, too doesn't there? Not just our culture, but also in the Christian church. So, you know, we read books, but I don't know about you. If we read, many of the, the books that we read sometimes tend to oversimplify love. They say, well, if you just love in like these five love languages, right, you know, and you just, you know, if you're, if you're a wife's a gifts person, just give her gifts and then she's loved and you're good, right? Um, or maybe, you know, you're, you're a Myers-Briggs person. You're like, oh, you're an introvert, extrovert. Here's how you're supposed to be loved. If you're a T or a J, this is how you're supposed to be loved. Or, you know, these days it's the Enneagram that's taking over, right? You got to love the nine, like how they're supposed to be loved. You got to love the two, how they're supposed to be loved, or things are going to go haywire. And they can be helpful, but they tend to be very oversimplistic, in the way that we try to love each other as Christians. So, let me define this for you. Peter, as love, the way that love is defined as Peter's describing it, is an incarnational love. An incarnational run, love. Now, what do I mean by this? I know I've got some youth kids here tonight because we got a little event afterwards. Youth kids, when I said the word incarnational, you just looked at me like, what the heck is he talking and speaking in tongues about, right? Um, incarnational love means that love is expressed in a person. It's embodied in a person. Specifically, the Bible says nonstop that, that God is love. The person of God is love, that the Lord is gracious, slow to anger, rich in love, like we just read in our scripture readings today. Loving as God loves means loving incarnationally, loving like as the person of God has loved. The Old Testament speaks to this reality in, in a passage in Deuteronomy that, um, that we, we hear all the time. 
the greatest commandment that Jesus talked about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And actually, if you look at that, that verse, that was actually a verse designed to teach children. In Hebrew, it's, it's a word called the Shema, right? The, the children would have been unknown that this is what life was really all about, that, that loving meant loving as the person of God loved us. And so, how does then God embody, incarnationally embody this kind of love? How is this demonstrated and this is shown? Well, it's shown through the person, the incarnate Jesus Christ. And in the pages of the gospel, we see God incarnate making himself known to us and displaying every facet and being an expression of love. Every word that was spoken from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the nails in his hands and his feet, his death and resurrection born for our sins, this is love incarnate. It is the fullest expression of human love that could ever come for us. It's a grace that we wonder and think about as we think about the ones who tortured Jesus and Jesus asking for their forgiveness, for uh, the Lord for their forgiveness. It's a wonder of a love for Jesus to teach disciples who did not understand him and ran away at the first sign of trouble. It's the, to, to, to heal those who were considered unclean, unworthy, undeserving. And he stretches out his hand in compassion to heal them. It's a love that reaches out to those who would have been perceived as the outcasts of society. The Samaritan, the leper, the prostitute, the Pharisee, the fisherman, even the children. It forgives when bitterness would be the better our response in our eyes. So when Peter speaks in verse 8, saying, above all, love one another, he's not speaking in general platitudes or trite love songs. He's saying that the incarnate love of who Jesus is, this is the love that we are to imitate because his banner over us is love. Do you see that? So, Here's the simple question that I want to ask of you here today. Above all that you do in your day, your schedule, your work, your routines, your Facebook account, your social media, your place in the world, above all the titles that you hold, doctor, pastor, father, mother, right? Above all the letters that maybe are in the front part of your name, last part of your name, are you known as a person that imitates the incarnate love of Christ. This is why Peter, in these next several verses, gets specific about how to love one another in verses 9 through the end of the passage. 
You see, it does no good for us to try and define what incarnate love looks like. Peter knows us, right? He, he wants to get down into the nitty-gritty of it. So Peter is reminding ourselves how Christ incarnationally loved us. So look, look at these next set of verses, right? Show hospitality to one another as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another, right? And then he goes on and he says, in order that God in everything, uh, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So incarnational love, and then as he defines the next several verses, demands an incomprehensible love. An incarnational love demands an incomprehensible love. Now, what do I mean by an incomprehensible love? Um, you know, I, I had the honor of uh, one time being able to attend a lecture by uh, a very famous Christian apologist by the name of John Lennox. Some of you may have heard about this guy, right? He's an Oxford professor. He famously spent a round of, of debates uh, debating Richard Dawkins on the tour and the trail. Richard Dawkins is, is a part of the New Atheists, right? Sort of this wave of, of people trying to convince people that, that religion is evil, and in particular Christianity is, is one of the most evil forces in the world today. And John Lennox is, is an Oxford professor who is trying to, to debate with him. And Richard Dawkins essentially boils the concept of love down to rationality, right? It's rationality, right? What is ever is observable, whatever is repeatable, whatever is scientific about love, that's what love is. And famously, Lennox turns to Dawkins in this, in this one debate, in this brilliant line. And, you know, Lennox is just this kind, sweet guy. He looks like your, you know, just the, 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 your, your, your favorite grandfather, like on steroids, right? He's just so sweet and kind. And he goes, you know, Richard, I hear what you're saying about, about all of this, but, but I presume that you have faith in the idea that your wife loves you, right? Is there any evidence for that? <laughs> And, and Richard Dawkins looks at Lennox very sheepishly, and he says, and he says, well, of course there's, there's evidence that my wife loves me. And then it dawns on Dawkins, something that's incomprehensible about love. And John Lennox is just smiling the entire time, knowing that he's won the argument, but he doesn't rub it in his face. He just smiles, right? In other words, Lennox was trying to get Dawkins to help realize that there is an incomprehensibility to love. There is something that is completely irrational about love, and in fact, it drives everything that we do in our lives. Think about this, these questions. Why did you wake up in the morning? Who do you choose to love, and why does that matter? Those aren't scientific questions, but you live your life by those questions. As famously, the apologist David Wolfe said, um, you live your life by these questions that are totally motivated, not by a rational understanding, but by the, fueled by the love that you have for the people around you and the worldview that you hold. You see, if love was just a chemical reaction to another individual of atoms firing against other atoms, if love was reduced to physical expressions, then we, if love was all about just self-preservation, then love, in every sense of the word, would be limited. It would be finite. 
It would be defined based on affinity, emotionality, logic, philosophy. And at any time you reach the breaking point in that limit of love, you have every right to reject and cancel that person or that individual or that institution or even break the bonds that you have made with other people. But we know that's not how we understand love. Incomprehensible, incarnational love models what we know to be true in our own experience, in our own hearts. Parents, why you sacrifice as much as you do for your kids. Husbands, why you sacrifice as much as you do as your, for your wives. Wives, you're perfect, so you don't need to... No, I'm kidding. Wives, why you sacrifice for your husbands. It's incomprehensible, but we know it to be true, don't we? Because we are modeling the incomprehensible love of Christ. This is a love that doesn't base things on whether or not I like you before I share hospitality with you. This is a love that invites you to the doors of our front houses and doesn't grumble about that cost. This is a love that calls us to use our gifts for one another, to serve each other in a broken world where every gift comes with a price. Christians model free grace in the way that we serve each other. This is a love that is able to speak to others about this love of Jesus that isn't shouting abusive judgment, but the arisen Christ. And this is a love that even when serving becomes cumbersome and hard and taxing, this is a love that is strengthened and fueled by God himself to love others richly and deeply. Because when you look at these very specific things here in these verses, these are the very tools that Christ has loved us with. Did you see it? Look at these verses here, right? Doesn't Christ say that he would prepare a room for us? He's the great king of hospitality. Doesn't Christ use all of his gifts and give them freely to all that were in need? The poor, the lame, the sick, the Jew, the Gentile. Doesn't Christ call himself a servant who washes his disciples' feet, as we heard about this morning. Doesn't Christ promise that he would be our strength, that he would always be with us to the very end of the age? Doesn't Christ demonstrate the greatest love for us when he would lay his own life down for us? Do you see? Does this sound like calculated love from our Savior? This is an incomprehensible love, an incomprehensible incarnate love. Well, now you've probably reached this point in the sermon and you're like me and you're wondering, well, that's beautiful and wonderful, but how could I ever love anyone like this, right? All I feel right now is like this immense wave of guilt now that has covered over me. How can I possibly love anyone like this? And in particular, if you know anything about Peter's life, you might be wondering, how is Peter calling anyone to love like this? I mean, look at Peter's life. Peter, how can you write these things? Peter, aren't you the one who said that, like, you would never abandon Christ? And, like, literally, hours later, you denied him three times. 
Peter, aren't, aren't you the guy that cut off the ear of a high priest? Like, that doesn't sound like a very loving act. Peter, right? you're this brash, outspoken disciple who's always talking about how great he is in front of others. What do, what do, how do you have any right to say that we should love incarnationally and incomprehensibly? Now, Peter could have easily copped out, right, as a lot of, you know, theologians and sometimes pastors do. They say, well, you know, do as I say, not as I do, right? Love this way, do as I say, not as I do. That could have been his defense. Um, But how do we do this? How do we love the way that Peter is saying this here? Sometimes we, we, we can cop out this way too. We can say, well, you know, Christians aren't perfect. They're just saved, we kind of throw out those trite phrases here. And, and, and hear me, that is true. That is very true. But I think why that phrase is inadequate sometimes is because it gives us an incomplete picture of the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Um, see, I think that phrase can sometimes give us the feeling or the thought that it is okay to just stay where we are in our faith and our relationship with God, that, 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 that there is no progress that God isn't moving us to become more like himself, more like his son, Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying, he's not saying, Peter is not saying, do as I say, not as I do, but rather he's saying, do as Christ loved, not as I do. And do you see the difference there? Right? Um, this is where guilt goes out of the picture because we're reminded of our union with Christ. We are able to point upward and say, you know what? I can love one another in this way because Christ has loved me deeply in this way. And I have known and I have tasted and I have seen the love of Christ. And I want to share in whatever infinitesimal small portion of that love that I've received. I want to share it with you. I want to share it with you. I mean, isn't, after all, something unbelievably cathartic when you say without filter or agenda to someone, hey, I love you, right? Regardless of what they've done, regardless of their state of being, that they are deeply treasured in love. Isn't that so freeing for us? And, and by the way, if you haven't been able to say that to someone recently, um, I just suggest that even before you leave this sanctuary today, you give that a shot. Right? I know it's hard to say that through masks, but like, go for it, right? Give that a shot. Um, particularly... Youth, my youth kids here, right? Anyone under the age of like 17 years old. You know what will blow your parents' mind right now? If you say without agenda, without any expectation of reward, right? You're not tying it to like a request or a demand. Mom, dad, I just want to say how much I love you and I treasure the way that you love me in this family. You want to blow your parents' mind out of the, the, the water, right? Say that to them at some point. And I know some of you, you just put your head down. You're like, ah, pastor, that's too hard right now, right? But try it. Try it. An incomprehensible, incarnate love. Adults in this room, given all the tension and divide that has surrounded you this week, what would it look like in your lives to forgive others who have hurt you the most? 
to reach out and live as Jesus taught to be a peacemaker because this is what it means to be a son and daughter in Jesus Christ. What would it look like for you to reach out and love in that way? Brothers and sisters, if Peter's exhortation is to do as Christ loved, it's important for us to hear from each other constantly that we do care for each other. And I get why we might be scared to do this. I can already hear some of the objections maybe that you're having in your mind. If I love like this and I give away this love, I'm scared about what's going to happen when I do that. Um, I'm scared that my love won't be reciprocated in the same way. I'm scared of being hurt because I've opened up my heart before and it just felt naive in the way that I was hurt. And I know that's hard because we've been conditioned to treat of love as an economy. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, some of you know that I was a public school teacher's, uh, teacher in the Howard County Public School System in Maryland for about three years. And, you know, uh, while I taught elementary school, which, you know, if you've ever done elementary school teaching, you'll know that it, there's a lot of classroom management that needs to happen at that level. Um, fourth and fifth graders are not easy to keep under control. And so this, the county instituted a new educational policy. And this educational policy was simply this. We are going to give all the schools and all the teachers these little tickets. And these little tickets would be handed to kids and given to them when they're masking the right kind of positive behavior that we would like to see out of them. So, for example, if a, a student was standing in line, right, and they were standing in line and they were just standing there quietly doing what they were supposed to do, the teacher would hand that student a ticket. Now, I know some of you who are a little bit more wiser in age, right, are going at that and I go, come on. They're getting rewarded for doing exactly what they were supposed to do. Like, I would have gotten like, you know, like, like that was back then, right? Right? But like now, what was interesting about this program is that as the kids would receive tickets, they could use these tickets to purchase like things like pencils and candy and things like that in the school store. And the thing about that was that that program was widely successful when they did the research on it. Behavior, like outcomes, like increased like crazy because of this system. But you know what I lamented as a teacher doing this system? Though it was an effective means of getting the kids to quiet down and sit in line and do what they're told to do. What I lamented most as a teacher was that every single day I was teaching them that love was an economy. That you can only be accepted by doing what I tell you to do. That I was conditioning them every day to say to them, the only way I can love you is by this reward that you are now going to behave for. And I think a lot of us have been conditioned in that way. And there was this one kid in particular that I had in my classroom. This kid was uh, a kid who had a very um, difficult background. He didn't have a very stable family. He didn't have the resources around him to get even basic things. Like I was a music teacher and, and there was instrument supplies that he needed. He didn't have uh, the kind of things modeled to him from a, from a father or a mother that could teach him the way that he should act. And you know, the thing that broke my heart every single day with the student is that I could never give this kid a ticket based upon the demands of what this ticket was asking me to do. This kid could never know you 
are loved in this way. And you know, sometimes I think when we, when we view God, we think God is a God who's just handing out tickets for good behavior. Instead of a God who looks at us despite our goodness, looks at us in our brokenness, looks at us in our sin, looks at us in all of the ways that we fail, and says, here you go. I am giving you this, that which you do not deserve. But I just simply want to tell you that love is not an economy in my system. Love is a grace that I'm giving to you. How would our world be profoundly changed if we could love each other like this? How could we as a church do this? Because love if we love in this way, love doesn't just become an incarnate love, an incomprehensible love, but it becomes a multiplying love. When you look at this, the purpose of all of the ways in which we are to love one another comes at the very end here. In order that, anytime you see that phrase in the Bible, right, it's telling you the purpose of why he's commanding you to do what you do, right? In order that everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, this love is not just so that you can love one another and you can have good relationships. This love is so that when you love one another in this way, Christ becomes more glorious in your communities. Christ becomes more glorious in your household. Christ becomes more glorious in your community group. Christ becomes more glorious in Charleston. Christ becomes more glorious in the world around us when we model the incarnate, incomprehensible love of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, we have a very unique opportunity in our country and in this world right now. And I believe the harvest is ripe because there are people who need to be loved in this way. And the gospel can be made so rich, just even in the relationships around you, if you could look and examine that in the way that Christ has loved you, if you extend that to others, how glorious the name of Jesus will be. So I want to commend that to you. I really want to commend that to you. When love is unconditional, when love is incarnational, when love is incomprehensible, love will multiply. And he has promised that. You can lament with your friends this week who are hurting and mourning. You can give charity and grace to those who you disagree with. You can dine with and open your home to people that you may have never imagined you would open up your home to. In other words, you can begin to love the way that Jesus has loved you. This is the gospel that we need to hear in our hearts today. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the love of Christ. Your son come down in the flesh, became man, to demonstrate us what love is. Father, though we cannot fathom it, Lord, we pray that we would live it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we've treated love as an economy and that we've rationalized it. But God, now, 
especially now, God. May we be the kind of church that for the glory of your name would love the stranger, would love the alien, would love our enemies, would love our families, would love our friends, would love our neighbors. We love because you first loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.